Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Our passage today is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. God, we praise you uh, this morning for, for coming into this world, God incarnate, God made flesh, not uh, to sit on a throne and be royal and to, to rule over us with, a, with an iron fist, but Lord, you came uh, into humble circumstances to, to live in, in the world that, that we live in, experience all the struggles and temptations that, that we have lived through, yet without sin, in order to, to give your life as a ransom for us. Lord, we love you, and I, I pray that this morning as we go through this passage, uh, that you uh, speak uh, through your word uh, to us um, and that, that we can hear it clearly so that you are glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so a few weeks ago, uh, as Pastors Ethan, uh, Michael, and myself um, were discussing how we were going to preach through our Advent series, we realized that the actual narrative of the birth of Jesus was going to land on today, December 17th, a week before the weekend of Christmas. So we briefly discussed reordering the passages, putting the the shepherds on this week and then the birth of Jesus next week on on Christmas Eve to make it line up nice and neatly. But we ended up deciding that it was just better to not not distort how how Luke gave us uh, this account, uh, how God revealed this account to Luke, uh, by trying to make it fit into our little four-week celebration of the birth of Christ. And after all, the, the date that we celebrate the birth of Jesus is, is arbitrary. It's, it's not the, birth, the date that Jesus was born. It's not his birthday. Um, it most likely was not December 25th when he was born. It's just a date that we settled on uh, sometime centuries uh, before in order to, to have a time each year to celebrate his coming. So it doesn't matter when we get to this passage. In fact, it, it might be a good idea someday we'll, we'll do a series through this, an Advent series in the middle of the summer, uh, because it doesn't have to be just left here in December. The importance of what this passage holds does not have to be left to one Sunday or four Sundays of Advent. And I think the downside of, of having a set time of year that we focus on the birth of Jesus is that we've gotten to a place that it, where it is tied maybe a little bit too tightly to this time in December and that it deprives us of the joy and privilege of having our minds and hearts on this at any other time of the year. 
And I am also somewhat selfishly grateful that I get to preach through, uh, through this specific passage. Um, this, is, this passage, these seven verses, is what Christmas is all about. And while I love a lot of the cultural Christmas traditions, um, the songs and movies, the decorations, uh, picking out a Christmas tree with my family, uh, the meals and all that, all that stuff that goes with that, that's not at all what Christmas is about. We could, we could leave all that and still praise God for the meaning of Christmas. Amen. Christmas is about Christ, the most important man to ever live on this earth, the incarnation of God himself. Sure, there have been many powerful world leaders, but this is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Think about how the events of this passage have shaped history for the last 2,000 plus years. And I'm not just talking about how it has changed how we celebrate this, this Advent season, the season of Christmas. I challenge you to name one other person in history, even from a secular point of view, whose entrance into the world and whose life thereafter has had even half of the impact on the world as Jesus' birth and life, let alone his impact on, on the eternity of many of our souls because of his death and resurrection. And all of this without having been born into nobility or wealth. This event was so pivotal that that we even ended up using it as our ongoing reference point for what year we are in. When we refer to something that happened before Christ, we say it happened in year so-and-so B.C., meaning before Christ. And everything since then is so-and-so A.D., which is Anno Domini, Latin for in the year of our Lord. Though you do occasionally see this exchange for the terms B.C.E. and C.E., meaning before the common era and common era. But even with that, it's just changing the terms. The focal point between the two is still the arrival of Jesus. Amen. It's just an attempt by some to not use the acronym that refers to Christ. Now, prior to this dating system, uh, people used something called regnal years, which would be much more difficult to keep up with. Uh, because it was a number of years in reference to how long a ruler of, of your country uh, had been in power. So, for example, if we, use, if we didn't use the BCAD calendar and you wanted to refer to the year 1850 in the United States, you'd have to say in the second year of Zachary Taylor's president, presidency. Now, I don't know how many of you even would have known that Zachary Taylor was a U.S. president. It sounds more like a, a country singer to me. Um, so if you can't praise the Lord for his coming and the forgiveness of your sins, at least praise him for a simpler way of keeping up with our dates. <laughs> and yet while the events of this passage have so significantly changed the course of history, how simple is its content? Just seven brief verses. Luke, the author of this account, as Pastor Michael has mentioned in previous sermons, he was a physician and I think we can kind of see that come through in how, how he writes. He gets, very, like, gets straight to the, to the most important facts, like a medical triage. No need for fluff information here. You could say that he's less poetic in his style than uh, John, 
um, and very much less wordy uh, than the Apostle Paul who wrote uh, the letters that make up most of the New Testament. But while Luke's account is brief and straight to the point, it's also very economical in how much information he does give us with so few words. Though reading it without some knowledge of the time, to set it in its historical context, it can make it seem very informationally sparse. But just in these two verses, uh, the first two verses, a whole lot of in- of historical and political information is given that sets the stage and the reason for the place and the timing of Jesus' birth. We must first take the time to to understand what he is referring to. There's a a decent amount of information here about where we are just in the Roman imperial timeline. But why did Luke feel that it was important to include all this stuff about who the Caesar was at the time and who the governor of Syria was in this registration. R.C. Sproul noted in uh, one of his commentaries about this um, that including these specific historical details sets the story of Jesus apart from myths and fables that surrounded the religions of of the ancient world that, that they were in. Greek deities were not born into and raised in the world as a real part of history. It was this whole other thing that Jesus was. So this immediately sets this story apart and makes it more credible as a historical account of a real event. The birth of Jesus does not occur in a vacuum, not affected by everything else. It is not myth or legend. Mary and Joseph were real people. Jesus was a real human being while also being 100% God incarnate. He was the Word made flesh. Bethlehem was a real place. You can visit it today. This census really happened and led to Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And while... Some may say that the extra-biblical archaeological evidence to back up this account is limited. Every piece of archaeological evidence related to this event and time that has been discovered since further supports the account of Luke. A few months ago, there was this weird social media trend going around where people, mostly women, were asking their, their husbands, boyfriends, dads, uncles, etc., the, the men in their lives, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And what made this trend catch on was everyone's surprise at how often men apparently think about the Roman Empire. Some were saying as often as multiple times per day, every single day. I know, it's bizarre, but... Um, but I know what, what can we say? Gladiator is probably in most of our top tens, right? So <laughs> the the reason that most of the guys then gave for thinking about the Roman Empire so much was the impact that Rome and its culture had on American culture and a lot of other current cultures now, two thousand years later. Even though we are not an empire, we, we have been very much affected by a lot of the advances that the Roman Empire made, and it's flowed down through history to us, from art and science, politics and architecture, without even realizing it, a lot of these things are affected by the Roman Empire. 
But for us as Christians who often study the New Testament, we probably think about the Roman Empire even more than, than average because it's significance during the time of Christ in the early church. Obviously, it had a huge effect here on, on Jesus' birth. It also played a major role in Jesus' crucifixion. And despite its every effort to stamp out Christianity in the early church in the first century, you could say that it actually ended up serving as a, as a catalyst to spread Christianity all over the world. If it weren't for the sophisticated road system that Caesar Augustus, here in verse 1, implemented, the travel in the region would have been much more difficult and dangerous. But it literally paved the way for the apostles to carry the gospel across much of the known world within their lifetimes. Now, speaking of Caesar Augustus, and we've got a, a picture of him, if you want to pop him up on the screen there, William, um, just a statue of what Caesar Augustus might have looked like. Um, a big piece of information that we have uh, here in verse 1 uh, is that Jesus' birth took place during Caesar Augustus' reign. And so it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Again, this is what I'm talking about when I say that Luke places the birth of Jesus within the context of real events. No sort of mythical language used here. Just straight to the point and places it right in the middle of a known event. Whether you're a history buff or not, I know the name Caesar Augustus sounds familiar. For many reasons, he could be considered the most well-known of, of all of the Roman emperors. One reason for that is that he was the first Roman emperor. I actually didn't know that until I was studying for this. Um, I don't know my ancient history that well. But, um, one, so he basically would be like, um, like our, their George Washington, but thankfully Washington did not turn us into an empire. Um, Augustus's uh, predecessor should also sound familiar, Julius Caesar. He, he was the last leader of the Roman Republic. And when the Republic fell and Julius was assassinated, uh, you know, the et tu brute thing by Brutus, um, all power under Rome then was eventually consolidated under one man, Julius Caesar's nephew, Gaius Octavian. When Gaius took, took power, he then took the title Caesar Augustus when he became emperor. So becoming emperor of the most powerful nation in the world at the time easily made Augustus the most important and powerful person in the world, probably in all of history up until that point, or at least for a few more years until God himself became man. So while emperor, uh, he also took the title Dominus et Deus, meaning Lord and God. So it was with Augustus that the worship of the Roman emperor as a god himself started. So this would later bring severe trials and persecution upon the early church Christians when they refused to worship the emperor. It was also under Augustus' reign that this new empire really flourished economically and geopolitically. Rome experienced a time of relative peace under Augustus. There were at least no major powers uh, challenging them, though there were still some expansionary wars uh, as the empire spread across Europe and Asia and North, Northern Africa. But no major threat to the empire 
arose for quite some time. And during this time of peace, uh, called the Pax Romana, might sound familiar, uh, Augustus was able to grow his military power. He was able to start lots of innovative building programs, including the, the better road systems. He set up a, a massive system of centralized government and implemented, implemented regulation into commerce and trade. But of course, growing a massive empire like this comes with a huge price tag. And how does any power-hungry world leader generate funds? Through taxes. And how does an emperor gauge how many people he has to funnel these funds from through these taxes? A registration or a census. Now, it's easy to look at our own world political climate and feel glum sometimes about lost freedoms, uh, distorted morals, high taxes, and so forth. But at least we aren't living under a leader who even admitted out loud that he wants to be worshipped like a god. Because in cases like this, when your emperor with delusions of divinity decrees a new census and taxes, you don't have a choice to speak up or vote against it or protest or opt out. You do what you were told or you die. So that's the situation where we find Mary and Joseph. And it says in verse 3, if you'll look back, uh, it all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now the extra-biblical uh, historical records uh, that we have of Roman censuses, censi, censuses, I don't know. Um, it's not clear why they were required to go back to their birthplace. It, it does not seem that it was a typical Roman thing to have people go back to their birthplace for a census like this. Uh, so it's speculated that this may have been a Jewish thing. Uh, we, we do know that Jewish people uh, kept very diligent records of their people's family trees, their birthplaces. Uh, so maybe this was something that Herod, the, the vassal king underneath Caesar, uh, appointed over, over the Jews at the time. Maybe that was something that uh, he appointed uh, and, and insisted for them to do. Uh, the census was also likely conducted systematically, uh, going from town to town, rather than what we often think it was just this one massive census of the entire Roman world all at the same time. Uh, even just for manpower's sake, they probably would have gone more systematically, going town to town. And I'm sure there probably was some sort of deadline uh, that everyone had to, to meet in each town uh, to be registered, kind of like our April 15th tax day. Uh, and it just so happened that the place uh, that was being registered at this very specific time was the town of Bethlehem, where Joseph had been born. But it's not, it's not so random as that. God doesn't work by just rolling with the punches of sinful man. Let's take a quick look back, if you want to turn to the book of Micah, in chapter 5, verse 2. And it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, old, from of old, from ancient days. Now, one commentator said that the only reason historically why Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because of this powerful imperial decree by Caesar Augustus. 
Yes, like from a historical perspective, that may be the only reason. You know, Caesar says register, and, and you go register. But this scripture that had been, re- been revealed to the prophet Micah hundreds of years before, before Caesar Augustus existed pointed to the, the Messiah coming out of Bethlehem. This was not coincidence. This had been God's plan and decree long before Caesar. Bethlehem was a small, seemingly insignificant little town. It was essentially a, a suburb if, if we think of it in our modern terms, of the bigger city, Jerusalem. It wasn't a big political hub or a major metropolis, just a little town. But it had already played a major role in, in the Jewish history. Many years earlier, and if you recall from our uh, sermon series back in the summer, uh, through the book of Ruth, there was a woman named Ruth, a Moabite woman, who followed her mother-in-law back uh, to her hometown after both of their husbands had died. And her hometown was Bethlehem. And Ruth ends up finding and marrying a Jewish man uh, there in Bethlehem named Boaz. And Ruth and Boaz uh, are then end up being the great-grandparents of a shepherd boy named David. David was the youngest and smallest of, of a, a big group of brothers, But when God sent his prophet Samuel to choose a new king for Israel, he goes through the whole list of all of these brothers who looked from the world perspective much more qualified to be a king, and none of them were were God's chosen king for Israel. God led Samuel to this insignificant little shepherd boy who was still out in the fields with the sheep. He led led him to, to David. Bethlehem, while, while being a nowhere little town, had already become famous for this, for being the hometown of the kid who ended up being Israel's greatest king, King David, the shepherd king. And from this little town, God had given his people a temporary great king to lead them, to protect them and to save them. And as the prophet Micah said, from this same town, God had a plan to bring into the world the eternal king of kings, the perfect savior. Even Caesar Augustus, the the most powerful man in the world, who was certainly not a follower of Yahweh, who falsely thought of himself as on, on the level of a god, even he, he was doing the work of God the Father to bring about God's will in bringing the Son into the world exactly as he said he would. Did Caesar have free will? Yeah, of course he did. Was he acting of his own free will? Yes, he, he was. While he had no idea or intention whatsoever of fulfilling some ancient Jewish prophecy that I'm sure he had never even heard of, of the, speaking of the Messiah, through his actions, that's exactly what he did. From his own perspective, he was doing what he wanted to do, what what was best for Caesar. But God is sovereign over all. He's even sovereign over the acting out of, of their sinful nature, of our sinful nature. 
Just because Caesar had free will to act however he wanted and to control a huge part of the world however he saw fit, it does not mean that he had control over the Almighty God. His free will, as is our free will, was still well within the power, supremacy, sovereignty, and the providence of God. Even if he had been aware of this greater overarching plan, there is nothing that he could have done to alter or to foil God's providential plan for redemption. He also couldn't have done a better job at assisting the fulfillment of the prophecy if he had been trying to. Just quickly think about how encouraging and comforting that should be for us. So even if you had the power of a Caesar, you couldn't mess up so badly as to mess up God's plan. Sure, Caesar had the power to decree this census and to make it happen. But God has the power to carry out his ancient decree that his son, our Savior, would be born at a specific time at a specific place of this virgin for the very specific reason of saving his people from their sins. Amen. So Joseph and Mary obeyed the decree. They went up from Nazareth, uh, where they lived, to the region of Judea, to the town of Bethlehem, which would have been between 80 and 100 miles. And we've got a map of that, too, just to kind of give a reference of what that journey would have, been, would have looked like. So this is actually about the distance from here in St. Albans to down south in Rutland. Uh, Bethlehem was also a good bit higher elevation than Nazareth. So poor nine months pregnant Mary is riding a donkey up a hill for 90 miles, which would have taken probably about four days on a donkey. Luke doesn't tell us why Mary went with Joseph on this journey. He doesn't say that Mary specifically was required to go with him to register. She wasn't born in Bethlehem. But we can safely assume that it just made sense that Joseph wouldn't want to just leave Mary behind when she's due any minute with a baby. And also remember how this situation might have looked from, from an outside Jewish perspective. While betrothed to Joseph, and betrothed is, is a similar term as, that we might use to say engaged, but it was more binding than a modern engagement that we think of, as separating at this point would have required a formal divorce. So during that, Mary becomes pregnant. And while betrothed meant that there was that significant level of commitment, they were not fully married yet either, which in that time meant that the marriage had not been consummated yet. We also see in Matthew's account that Joseph did not know her until after she gave birth. So she remained a virgin until after Jesus' birth. If everything had gone according to the normal plan and tradition, Mary should not be showing pregnancy yet. From an outsider perspective, people who haven't been visited by an angel this looks like Mary has been unfaithful to Joseph. And in that culture, if that had been true, Joseph had the right even to have her stoned to death. But he, he knew that that wasn't true. He had been visited by an angel, 
So there may have been people who were shaming Mary for this pregnancy. It would not have been ideal to have left her alone to go on this trip that might have taken weeks total there and back. So while it made sense to take her along, it was not going to be a pleasant honeymoon getaway together. So after arriving in Bethlehem uh, for Joseph's registration, conditions also not improving, uh, we've all seen the common uh, Christmas decoration version of the nativity scene. Uh, we've got a picture of that too, the very traditional uh, nativity scene there. Um, so you've got you know, Jesus there in, in the manger, Mary, dealt, Mary knelt down uh, next to it, and Joseph standing over him, and all the, the happy-looking various farm animals looking, looking over as well, and the three wise men and the shepherds that we'll read about next week, all there, all inside this little tumble-down stable. With the, that one has a star. Sometimes there's an angel on top. Much of this is assumed simply based on one thing that we are told, that he was laid in a manger. And yes, manger refers to some sort of feeding trough type of structure. Well, that could have been even a cleft cut in, the, in a cave wall, uh, as there, caves are common in the area, uh, and apparently back then were often used to, as stables for, for their animals. Uh, but it also could have even been this like basket type of, uh, of thing weaved together out of animal hair. Um, it's because of this one statement that it is often assumed that they were in some standalone stable barn type of situation. But we forget that in a time before cars, when people traveled mainly by some sort of beast of burden, whether that be horse, camel, donkey, uh, every building and home would have a place to hitch your animals, uh, near probably some food and, and water there so it can refresh itself. So essentially we just know from this manger statement and the statement about there being no room in the inn, that they were not in a typical sleeping quarters uh, type of area. But in this time, and even, even today in some parts of the world, the place for the animals was often much closer in proximity to the place where the people were than we might think with our modern Western minds. It seems weird to us and unsanitary, but the, the common room area like a home's living room, could have been right next to where the animals were, possibly with very little wall barrier from all of the smells. So they even could have been in a, in a home's main room when the baby came, and you know, just as convenient, grab the manger over there, we'll lay him in that. The end of verse 7 just says, because there was no place for them in the inn. And when I was a kid, probably early teenage, like 6th or 7th grade, uh, I was chosen to be the innkeeper in, in our church Christmas play. Uh, but this play had a different spin on the whole Christmas story. It was actually supposed to be what, uh, what the story of the birth of Jesus would have looked like if it had occurred in modern times. So my innkeeper role was actually the manager of a motel. Um, and I served as sort of the comic relief uh, in an otherwise serious part of the story. My character was a very high-strung, like anxious person who just kept talking constantly when Mary and Joseph's uh, characters tried talking to me. I have no idea why I was given this role. <laughs> uh, but our choir director just loved it. He could not stop laughing every time we practiced this scene. Uh, 
I bet my parents actually still have this on tape. So. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the two teenagers uh, playing Mary and Joseph walked into this motel set and rang the bell at the desk, and then up I popped from behind the desk uh, like a jack-in-the-box. Um, but my part went on to keep on rambling about being the manager of the motel, but answering every question they had with, I don't know, I'm new here, <laughs> and to tell them that we had no vacancy. So just like we tend to overassume how things were because of the mention of the manger, we do the same thing with the mention of there being no room in the inn. And actually, the Greek word used for inn here is different from the word that would most commonly be used for inn in the motel, hotel type of sense. Instead, this word would have referred to something more like a guest room in someone's house. It's actually the same Greek word as is used later when Jesus and his disciples shared uh, the Last Supper together before his crucifixion in what we call the upper room. So essentially, no room in the inn just means there was no room for any, in any of the, the typical sleeping places, private rooms, guest rooms. Because in a small town like this in Bethlehem at the time, it would have been unlikely that there were... A, anything like a commercial inn, motel, hotel type of situation. Uh, so contrary to my whole role in that play, there probably wasn't some, and it's not mentioned in scripture, that there was this like jerk innkeeper who just was unwilling to find a better place for Mary to go through the labor process. Because of the census though, there would have been a large influx of people needing to stay somewhere. In addition, to the people coming to be registered, uh, there would have been all these Roman officials who were there to conduct the registration, and they probably would have taken all the best spots already. Uh, Luke also does not say that they arrived in town just in the nick of time, as Mary was about to give birth. In nearly every movie and play uh, depiction that I've seen, that's, that's the case. They're rolling into town just as it's about to happen. Um, but again, we assume this because we think that if they had more time to spare, they, they surely would have found some place better for Mary to go to give birth. But Luke just says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And they, they might have even been there for multiple days at this point. We, we don't know. Um, they, might have, they might have finished up with their registration obligations. Uh, and at this point, they're just waiting out the birth before starting that long trek back uh, to Nazareth. And I also like to think, if you'll forgive one more time, uh, my imagination uh, in the story about Luke possibly interviewing Mary herself some years later as he's putting this account together. And there she is going through all of the details, as, our, as many of our ladies would like to do when they tell their stories. Um, and there's Luke taking notes, and he's writing down, and while they were there, the time, came birth. The, the time came for her to give birth, period. And she gave birth. That, that's all the details that we get about it. Exactly how a man would record the events. <laughs> but while we can speculate about how, how all of these things may have been, or might have looked different from the common nativity scene image, Luke didn't feel it was important to burden this written account with excessive details about the 
about the whole event is that it would have been unnecessary and, and might detract from the main point that this was about the Messiah. God's Son, God made flesh, the eternal King of Kings, and His humble entrance into the world. Instead of including all the down and dirty details, he wanted his readers to understand that Jesus was the firstborn son in the family line of King David. There hasn't been a rightful king of Israel in a long time. Israel, and that's because Israel has been under constant oppression by ever-changing world empires for hundreds of years. The Babylonians, now the Romans... And now here is their rightful king. Born into humility within David's own hometown, just as God had said that he would through Micah. By referring to Jesus being the firstborn son, Luke is making a connection then to a passage in Psalms 89, verse 27, which says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth suggesting Jesus' sovereignty over all rulers and kings, even if it didn't mean that he would physically sit on a throne during his earthly life. Jesus didn't come into the world to sit on a throne and to reign and lord over his people and be served like royalty. Jesus himself later said to his disciples, as we can read in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And also in Luke 19.10, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So brothers and sisters, the, the rightful King of Kings came into the world to live a humble life, who is Hebrews 4 says, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that he could serve and give his life as a ransom for you and me. He did that for you. He did that for me. He came to seek you and to save you. He was not like a Greek false god whose stories are completely separate from the realities of history. He lived in a real time, in a real place, according to God's providential plan. The greatest powers and authorities the world had ever seen in the late 1st century BC were unwittingly helping to carry out the plan that God had set in motion before the foundation of earth and time. To have the Word become flesh. To have him dwell among us. So that we may see and give glory to him forever and ever and ever. Now, if you've never done so before, I urge you to cry out to the Almighty God right now to save you from your sin. I cannot promise that that will change your earthly life for the better, though it, it will give you freedom in Christ and a peace and a hope in Him. 
But God himself, as we have seen, didn't have a decent place to lay his head. But I can absolutely promise you that if you cry out to God and trust in Jesus to take your sins upon himself and to give you his righteousness, it will change your eternity for the better in a way that I cannot even express. And if you do this today, please come talk to one of us because that makes you our brother or sister in Christ. And we want nothing more than to celebrate with you in that. Please pray with me. God, we praise you for this, that you came not in a vacuum as this mythical fable. Lord, you came into this world. You walked on this earth. You walked through the same trials and sufferings and temptations that we see, yet without sin. You remained righteous, God. Something that we have no chance at doing. All to seek and to save us. So that we can rejoice and praise you and give glory to you forever and ever. Lord, renew the joy that we have in this story. Help us not to get distracted in all the cultural Christmas and to look at the nativity story as that's just another part of it. This is why we celebrate, and we can do that any time of the year, that you came to rescue us. Lord, I pray that you help fill us with that joy so much that we cannot contain it within ourselves and it pours out upon everyone around us so that they may see you. Lord, you are good and we praise you for this this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.